If I were to be honest, I would say I'm impressed that you guys showed up this morning. We send out our bulletin every, every Friday or so before the week comes. And if you read it, you notice that there were five points. And I have no doubt that some people thought he can barely get through three points in 40 minutes. And yet you still showed up. I, that takes courage, and I commend you for that. All I can say is I hope you brought dinner. When you break down the family, you break down society. I will stake my reputation on the truth of that statement. I've said it before, I'll say it again, and it was the basis for the introduction to this series as we enter Colossians 3.18 and, and following. The success of society is the result of the success of its family. And therefore, I would say that for a society to advance forward, it is crucial then that we both understand what a family is and how a family should function according to the Lord's will and according to his design. That's why I've titled this series, Foundations for a Thriving Society. We began last week by looking at a wife's submission. And this week, we now look at the husband's role. The husband's, the plea for husbands, and the husband's love. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Foundations for a Thriving Society, a Husband's Plea. And please stand for the reading of God's word. As I did last week, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You may be seated. I believe it's in his book, Desiring God, that John Piper shares the story or shares of a famous cigarette billboard in which a man with curly brown hair and a bronze face and a muscular, macho figure stands there with a cigarette in his mouth. And the sign says, Where a man belongs. Piper responds to that ad by saying, That is a lie. Where a man belongs is at the bedside of his children, leading in devotion and prayer. 
where a man belongs is leading his family to the house of God, and where a man belongs is up early and alone with God, seeking vision and direction for the family. I'll add to that that where a man belongs is in God's will, leading his family through love. The family is a special institution. It is special because of those who make it up. Obviously, husband and wife, in some cases, children and even grandchildren. And then we could even talk about extended family. Those within the family experience and share a unique and very personal bond. It's not experienced by anybody else outside that family. It is special because of the one who made it. That is God. The family was his institution. It was a gift from him to the world as a means to provide order for the world, as we talked about last week. And finally, it is special because of the one it portrays, Jesus Christ. The family is dynamic, and it's a dynamic that, while very personal to those who are involved in it, it actually serves a greater purpose. And that greater purpose is to reveal our Lord Jesus Christ. The relationship between family is meant to picture the relationship that one should have with Christ. But with that profound goal comes profound responsibility. If the Lord offered the family as the structure for the world and the structure for society, as a way to provide order for society then it is up to those who make up the family, you and I, to then maintain that order. We are called upon by God to fulfill our duties, our roles as they were defined by him at the moment of creation. They're the same roles that were offered to Adam and Eve at creation. Nothing's really changed, which I hope we learned last week. There's a place for everyone in God's plan, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of personality, regardless of skills and abilities. The Lord has created a place for each of us. Last week we saw the wife's submission. And this week we now look upon the role of husbands. It saddens me to say that while many men want the (coughs) privileges of family, Very few men want the responsibilities of family. I'm convinced that it is a failure of men in their God-ordained roles that has really had the greatest contribution to society's failures. It is men's dereliction of their duty that has led to any downfall in society. And so because of that, we come to our text here in Colossians 3.19, And I cannot help but be anxious about the Lord's word. We read these words. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Those words, they read like a plea of the Lord as he's appealing to to husbands, asking them and calling upon them, do not forsake your calling. Indeed, the calling for men and for husbands is a sobering and very disciplined call. And that's conveyed by the Lord's plea here through the hand of Paul. And so I want you to note five aspects or five characteristics of that plea. One of the advantages of sending an incomplete and yet alliterated outline every week for the bulletin is 
that sometimes I can make changes and you will never know. <laughs> this is one of those times. As I made my final preparations, it became clear that really, if I organized my points differently, it was possible to draw out some important connections. And so what I've done is actually reversed my points. Because what I want to do is I want to work this text backwards, from end to beginning rather than beginning to end. And so that means that we read this text and, and we begin at the end and we see it reads this, them with harsh be not due, and wives your love husbands. It probably doesn't make sense to you. It shouldn't. That's not going to work. We can work backwards phrase by phrase, though. And we look at that final phrase there. It says, do not be harsh with them. Some translations that you may have say, do not be embittered against them. And so with those words, I want you to note first the explanation of the plea. The explanation of the plea. In his word, in the Lord's word, he could have chosen any number of descriptions to explain what it means to not be harsh and what it means to love our wives. But the Lord chose to characterize a husband's love with that phrase, do not be harsh. As in to say love is the absence of harshness. As Edward Lowe's comments on this verse, he sums it up this way, saying, men are forbidden to behave in an overbearing manner or to imagine that they belong to a superior species. With just a few words, harshness can damage relationships. It destroys trust. It inhibits intimacy. Harshness will cause a relationship to deteriorate because what happens is we become uncertain about how an individual will respond. And so we begin to hold back and not share with them in anything. Obviously, the, wife, the relationship between a husband and wife is very special, and there has to be those intimate times of communication. And yet, with a harsh husband, a harsh husband prevents that. These words are meant to avoid that possibility. This command here for husbands to not be harsh with their wives is a means to preserve the relationship, to preserve the communication and preserve the affection between the two. In other places in Scripture, like Romans 3.14 and Revelation 8.11, the word translated for harsh here is translated as bitter. It's most commonly translated it that way. That is to say, really what this verse is saying is not just do not be harsh, but it's really commanding husbands to stop being bitter with their wives. There's a tendency of Roman men and in the culture to rage bitterly against their wives. Unfortunately, it's a characteristic that men still wrestle with today. Scripture says much about bitterness while exhorting the Ephesians to be wise in their speech, it is written to all believers, not just husbands. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. A.T. Robertson, who was a gifted theologian and, and gifted linguist in Greek, had a gift with words. 
And he put it this way. It is useless to call your wife honey, but behave like vinegar towards her. When is bitterness present in scripture? What does bitterness often signify when we see that word? If we look at Romans chapter 3, we see Romans chapter 3, a description of the, the condemned sinners. And we see it in its exhaustive nature that in that passage, the entire world is condemned as sinners. We know that by Romans 3.23, which is an often quoted verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if you back up before that, I want to read to you, beginning in verse 10, verse 10 through 18. And it says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Bitterness is a description ascribed to those who have turned their back on God, to those who are unwilling to acknowledge him as Lord, and as a result, unwilling to worship him as Lord. It signifies just that a refusal to worship. We see this in Acts 8. We see this in Hebrews 12. And you can all go all the way back to the Old Testament and see it even in Deuteronomy chapter 28. That bitterness often signifies a refusal to worship the Lord. Notice our text once again. Love your wives. Do not be bitter with them. It places those two as opposite of one another. You're either bitter towards your wife or you love your wife. If scripture then is indicating that bitterness is reflective of a heart that refuses to worship the Lord, what does that mean for our text here? It means the opposite of bitterness is to love here. And love then becomes your means of worshiping God. When you love your wives, you're worshiping the Lord. When you honor your wife, you're honoring the Lord. And, and when you love your wife, you love your Lord. That also means when you dishonor your wife, you've dishonored the Lord. And so your relationship with the Lord is to be reflected in your relationship with your wife. This command here, do not be harsh, goes far beyond just not having a harsh attitude. It goes to the state of our heart before the Lord and our willingness to worship him by loving our wives. That's the explanation of the plea. I want you to note, second, though, the exclusivity of the plea. Notice that the text exhorts husbands to love their wives. It doesn't say husbands love your brother's wife or husbands love your best friend's wife. The words are precise. They're meant to direct a husband towards his wife and only 
one wife. That seems like a silly point to make, but we must always remember that we live in a fallen, sinful world, and that world will pervert God's gift of marriage. And so we cannot assume that all people understand the exclusivity of marriage as something between one man and one woman. The letter we're reading, Paul's epistle to the Colossians, it's written during a time when men could divorce their wives for literally anything. And so they could easily move from one wife to another. And the society wouldn't question them. The book of Sirach, chapter 25, verse 26, it directs a husband, if she, a wife, does not do as you direct, separate her from yourself. This was a typical view of the day. It's even a prevailing view of today between both spouses. If your spouse doesn't meet your needs, then get rid of that spouse. By his many marriages, Henry VIII offers himself as an example. In 40 years, he was married six times. His first marriage to Catherine of Aragorn lasted 24 years. And in the remaining 16 years, he was married five times. Some of those ranged from a few months, the longest being about four years. It seems that Harry lived, Henry lived by Sirach's words here ridding himself of any wife who did not meet his needs or his wants or his desires. And what was it that Henry wanted, if you know your history? A son. Something that was even beyond her control. But that's not what marriage was given for. It was not given so that men could advance from one wife to another, seeking our own needs, or even advancing our own will or our own agenda. The husband-wife relationship, it's an exclusive relationship. It is to her and her alone. That means you cannot get rid of her. It doesn't matter if she makes you angry. It doesn't matter if she submits, even according to the previous verse. She is always your wife, and she is your only wife. It's not dependent upon who she is or what she does. The pattern for that, that pattern for love, is Christ's love for the church. It's stated in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If the instruction is to love our wives as Christ loves the church, then we must understand how Christ loves the church. And we see that he did so exclusively. Christ loved no other. There is no other in scripture that is betrothed to Christ. No other group is called his bride. Never is his love conditioned upon the character or conduct of the church. That's not an excuse then for the church then to behave as it pleases. Instead, it's a reassurance that when the church fails, Christ's love will not fail. Man, that's what your wives need. They need to know that your love will not fail them, regardless of their conduct or their character. Your love provides security for them. If Christ's love is not determined by the church's character or conduct, why does Christ even love the church so much? 
because they were given to him. The church was given to him by God. Who makes up the church? Those who have acknowledged Jesus as Lord. Colossians 3.12 says they've been chosen by God. That God has called some of these people to himself. As we see in Romans 8, Ephesians chapter 1. And then God takes that group of people and does what? He gives them over to Christ as his bride. Christ loves the church because they were given to him by the God he loves. This is the model we have of love for our wives. It is exclusive, bound to no one else, independent of who they are or what they do. We love our wives because we love the God who gave us our wives. If we loved our wives based on what they did or who they were, we'd have a very unstable life, a very unstable marriage. Our life, our love, would always change based on a response to who our wife was. Vice versa, a wife could treat us the same way. If her love for us was dependent upon who we were, she could give it or remove it at any given time. What a miserable life that would be for all of us. When we love her because we love God, though, we have a stable life. Nothing ever changes. According to his complete knowledge of all things, a God who knows all things about all things. The Lord deemed that this was the woman that we needed in our lives. At the same time, he deemed we were the men that she needed in her life. And so our love for our wives is not dependent upon who they are in our lives. It's dependent upon who Christ is in our lives. And when we love our brides with Christ's love, we model Christ's love for his bride. That is the exclusivity of the plea. I want you to note second or third, related to that exclusivity is the eternality of that plea. I'll just advance very quickly through this point. It's Matthew Henry who said the duty of husbands is to love their wives. The love of Christ to the church as an example, which is sincere, pure, consistent, notwithstanding her failures. Because there are no conditions placed upon love, as we just talked about, then the nature of a husband's love is never ending. It never ceases. It never goes by the wayside. The eternality of a husband's love then is conveyed by that verb in our text, to love. If you look at verse 19 of Colossians 3, the form of the verb that Paul uses there indicates a continuous action. As in, husbands always love your wives, or husbands keep loving your wives. There is no end here. If our love was dependent upon our wives and what they do, we could remove our love at any given moment. You didn't do as I asked. Well, I don't love you right now. You made me angry, so now I don't love you now. Maybe if I'm not angry later, I'll love you again. That sounds absurd. But our love is not dependent upon them, and so it never ends. Husbands are not given the option to withdraw their love at any given moment. 
We're not allowed to love our wives one minute and not the next. Ours is an everlasting love because it models the everlasting love of God. Give thanks to the Lord, scripture says, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Later on, it says, to him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. Elsewhere, it says, to him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. He who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. And it says, it is he who remembers us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. Time and time and time again, scripture testifies to the enduring nature of his love. It is eternal and it will never be taken away. The love of God never ceases. And it is with this unending love that we then love our wives. Think about it this way. Colossians 3.12 tells us what? The verse says, put on then, sorry, yes, God's chosen ones, as God's chosen ones holy and beloved. That section begins by describing those in Christ as ones who have been loved by God. How have they been loved? With that same unending love. And then it says, put on love in verse 14. That command goes to everybody, but now we see as husbands that as we have been loved by God with an unending love, we then put that love on, and now we see the application in verse 19. It is that same love that we love our, our wives with. As we have been loved eternally, we now are prepared to love eternally. If our love for our wives is dependent upon our love for God, it's everlasting. It endures all things at all times in all ways. Do you see what's happened in our discussion now? with these three points. Scripture ties our love for God with our love for others. So that the more we love God, the more we can love others. It also means that when we don't love God, we can't love others. And so with our wives, to love them more, we must love God more. It's an unending love. And that brings us to the fourth point. The essence of the plea. At the heart of a man's role, at the very center of our calling as husbands, is to love our wives, to love them. I think one of the great mistakes that we make about God's ordering of society through headship is to think that that ordering is based on authority. We look at that and say, well, it's, it's giving man the authority. That's not the basis, though. What we see here is the basis for that headship is love. This is an incredibly profound statement here in verse 19 because it stands in contrast to a wife's submission in verse 18. If you and I were to finish that verse and say, wives, submit to your husbands, we would then probably write, husbands, lead your wives or direct your wives or govern your wives. But far more strategic is love. 
Because first, it gives husbands a far more demanding role. Because you can have submission without love, but you can't have love without submission. A wife may submit to her husband without actually loving her husband. But a husband can't love his wife without submitting to her. The placement of love in this text is even more strategic. When we realize that a husband's love is a wife's protection. Specifically, it is meant to protect her submission so that it will not be abused. A husband who loves his wife will not ask her to submit to anything that is contrary to her Lord. He won't ask her to go against God's teaching. And a husband who loves his wife will not ask her to submit to anything that is contrary to her conscience. He won't ask her to go against her convictions. And a husband who loves his wife will not ask her to submit to anything that is contrary to her best interest. He won't ask her to do anything that demeans her or anything that belittles her. This is a stunning reversal of the culture of the day. Through the Old Testament, the Lord actually has established love as a foundation, a premise for marriage. We see this in examples like Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 24, and Jacob and Rachel in Genesis 29. But by the time we get to the era when Paul has written his letter here, marriages are often arranged. They are instigated as a means of convenience. And so love was largely absent. Love was not a condition of marriage. If it happened to come about, then you were considered very fortunate. I've shared before that I, I enjoy the show Downton Abbey. And it begins, it centers around the lives of Lord and Lady Grantham. But much of their background and their story and the history of their marriage, it wasn't arranged. But the estate that they live on is about to go by the wayside. They're about to be bankrupt. And so he marries his wife, Cora. And he does so because she's wealthy and can save their estate. It comes out multiple times. And eventually, he says, indeed, I was wrong for that. But I did grow to love her. That's not the basis for marriage outlined for Paul and for, from God. Love is the difference between a marriage that merely survives and one that thrives. And so this one single verse is perhaps something we take for granted today. We just assume that it's going to be true. But in this time, with this one single verse, Paul overthrows an entire cultural pattern. To declare love as the foundation for marriage was a revolutionary concept. And then we look at the book of Ephesians and we find these standards for love in the parallel passage to what we've been reading. First, we read in Ephesians 5.28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so a husband is to love his wife as he would love himself. Remember the account of Genesis 2, 23 through 24. And it is there that a woman is made. And how is she made? From a man's flesh. And who has ever hated his own flesh? 
This is not a call for men to love themselves more or husbands to love themselves more. We already have a problem loving ourselves too much. At least I know I do. This is a call to love ourselves less and take any love that we think we should have reserved for ourselves and instead love our wives. This is the highest form of love because it is a selfless love. And that is the first standard then, to love our wives as we would love ourselves, denying them nothing and providing them everything they need. And then the second standard comes from verse 23. Ephesians 5.23, it says to love them as Christ loved the church. If loving a wife as a husband would love himself is selfless, loving them as Christ would love the church, I would say is sacrificial. As Christ denied his life so that the church may live, a husband denies his life so that his wife may live. We love our wives not merely as Christ would love them. We love them on behalf of Christ. Christ has delegated his authority to the husband. As creator, he owns all of us. That includes our wives. And he's delegated his authority to the husband. And in delegating that authority, he's delegated the responsibility as well. Remember Colossians 3.17. We read it today, but two weeks ago, I, 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 I spoke of it again. It says, do everything in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that verse hearkens us to remember that our roles are as Christ ambassadors. We are Christ ambassadors on earth. And what do ambassadors do? They work on behalf of the one who sent them. So an ambassador for Christ acts not only on Christ's behalf, but acts in a way that is consistent with Christ's character. Man, you are Christ's representative on earth. You are his ambassadors. Your responsibilities are many. In two weeks, we'll learn of another responsibility. But if your wife is not your own and she has been placed into your care, part of that responsibility then is to love her. But love her on behalf of Christ. This elevates the seriousness of love. The essence of the call is, is not to love our wives with our love. It's to love our wives with Christ's love. And not as we want to love her, but as Christ would love her. That is the essence of the plea. And so I want you to note finally the expectation of the plea. With the first word of our verse, that word husbands. Not only does a text convey who this is written to, husbands, but it also conveys a set of standards. When we hear the word husbands, no doubt we've already identified an image of a husband. We already have expectations of who a husband should be. We identify the character he should have, the skills and work ethic he should have, and in some cases we may even consider physical attributes that he should have. The expectations placed on a husband, they may vary on society, 
Certainly our standards in the U.S. may be very different than what a tribesman's standards would be in Kenya. Those standards may even vary by era. What we expect today may have been different than what we expect 100 years ago. And they may even vary by individual. What you expect may be different than what your neighbor expects. But see, far greater than these human expectations are divine expectations. And far more important than cultural standards are Christ standards. While in the husband-wife relationship, the culture may emphasize personal gratification, what we see is that Christ emphasizes personal sanctification. Paul writes his letter to a church that is situated in a, a culture that is organized by the head of household. Certainly placing the father in this role is a biblical model. We see that in scripture. But see, the culture at that time has distorted God's model and the, even the culture today. The culture of that day distorted it by giving fathers supreme, absolute authority. As I said, love was largely absent in that culture. And so what they did is tended to focus on the rights of a husband and rights of a father. And they would confer many rights on them, rights to demand obedience from their wives and rights to dominate their wives. And then they would urge the husbands to exercise that right. It encouraged them to make the most use of their wives and their children as servants. And so because men have misused that authority and gone that route, now today we've gone the opposite side, from one extreme to the other. And now we deny husbands their God-given place in the family. The, the movement now is to transfer the wife's character to the husband and transfer the husband's responsibilities to the wife. We see this in the demand for men to be passive in their roles as husbands and fathers, while the wives are called upon to be the primary providers. We went from a culture in Paul's era that gave husbands absolute authority to a culture in this era that gives husbands no authority. Cultural norms, though, don't matter. These views on, Christ, on, on marriage don't matter. What matters is what Christ has stated. In the beginning, the Lord created all things. And in that creation, he instituted the family. Think about that for a moment. Again, our God knows all things about all things. He knows everything. And in that knowledge, in that omnipotence, he determined that the best way to order creation was by establishing the family. Our God is also perfect. He is without fault or flaw, and that means that his creation must also be perfect. That means that his creation of the family and his institution of how the family is to function is also perfect. The only flaws we see in it today are the result of our sin. It has nothing to do with him. And so that means when we challenge the model of headship presented to us in Scripture, we're challenging God's perfection. We're saying, I don't trust you, Lord. I think I have a better way. 
I think I have a better model because your model's not working. But the Lord's model for family is not flawed because our Lord is not flawed. Indeed, the family is the unit of society and the husband is supposed to be the head of the family. And the family is a perfect means by which God works in the world. Do you know how I know that? It's by this word, husbands. Upon marriage, man is given a title. That title, husband. To take upon that title, it presupposes that a man is both qualified for that role and will fulfill the responsibilities of that role. With the word husband, Christ has established that a man who is given that role has met certain qualifications. Those qualifications are hard. Let's just be real. They're very difficult. For a man to be a husband, he must be qualified for the role of husband. What we see in scripture is he must be a Christian, according to 2 Corinthians 6. He must be committed to biblical headship, according to Ephesians 5. He must love children, according to Psalm 127. He must be a priest, according to Joshua 24. He must be a prophet, according to Ephesians 6. He must be a protector, according to Nehemiah 4. And he must be a provider, according to 1 Timothy 5 and Titus 2. Bodibachum writes, a man who does not possess, or at least show strong signs of these and other biblical characteristics, does not meet the basic job description laid down for a husband in the Bible. The husband is not only to be the physical provider for his family. What we see by those requirements is he's to be the spiritual provider for his family. Indeed, he is called to be a prophet, that he will act as a prophet by instructing his family in the things of the Lord. He will act as priest by praying both for his family and with his family. And he will act as patriarch by providing for them. Again, not just their physical needs, but their spiritual needs, providing wise counsel and wisdom and direction. And so this means he must be spiritually qualified for the position of husband. Another show I enjoy is a miniseries called Horatio Hornblower. It's been years since I've watched it. It's based on an old series of books. And it, this movie series, the TV series, came out in the late 90s and early 2000s. The main character is Horatio Hornblower, and it follows his life as an officer in the British Royal Navy, specifically during the Napoleonic Wars. There is one episode in which he is an acting lieutenant, and the captain goes crazy, quite literally. He's, he's making rash decisions. He's putting his people in jeopardy, and he even is on the verge of killing his people when they finally bring a straitjacket. He's declared unfit for command. What that means is there are three lieutenants on board, and one of those, the most senior, is going to step into that role of captain. The man that is most senior takes command of the ship, and he is at best a wishy-washy fellow. He's not willing to make the tough decisions because he doesn't want to look bad. He doesn't want to look like an unqualified leader, and yet that's exactly what he is by his refusal to lead. And after some terribly poor decisions, one of the others comes up to him and says, nobody ever said being captain would be easy. 
And the man responds, I never expected it to be easy. I expected to be fit for it. The first time I heard that phrase, it startled me because that's how I've always felt about my role as a husband. That's how I feel about my performance as a husband. Man, if you're a husband or hope to be a husband someday, the Lord's calling as a priest, prophet, and patriarch is a high one. I won't ask you if you're ready for the challenge of the call, but I will ask you, are you fit for the call? The culture of Paul's day was to dominate wives. It's easy to dominate our wives. It takes little skill to make demands. It takes little effort to create rules and regulations. The culture of our day today calls upon husbands to delegate to their wives. We give them all the responsibilities and we let the women handle it. It's just as easy to delegate to our wives as it is to dominate because when we delegate, we avoid responsibility. By delegation, we avoid any controversy. And by delegation, we avoid any consequences. But Christ's call is to love our wives. And that is a far higher calling than any culture ever places on us. There is greater integrity in this calling than any other. Do you know why? Because of everything we just went through in this verse. In the explanation of the plea, and the exclusivity, and the eternality, and the essence, and now the expectation of the plea, we see that our love for our wives is a means to love Christ, to worship Christ, and to proclaim Christ. Your love of your wife is a way to impact your wife with the love of Christ. By your love, you lead not only with godliness, but you lead her towards godliness. And that is a task laid before you, that you love your wives so that they may love Christ more. Once again, our wives are just gifts to us to steward for his glory and to shepherd for her good. You are to be a model of Christ for her. You are to love her with Christ-like love. You display to her Christ-like character and you lead her with Christ-like wisdom. All so that she may see Christ through you. Husbands, we... We love our wives not so that our wives will love us more. We love them so they will love Christ more and so that they will become more like Christ. And so let me ask you this. Is your wife more like Christ because she is married to you? Let's pray. Our Father God, Indeed, you are a God of love, as we prayed this morning. Father, we've experienced your love. You've called us to display your love. You've called us to display that love in, in all our relationships. And this morning we see how that impacts our marriage, Lord. Father, indeed, this is a high calling. It is a hard challenge. And yet, Lord, we know that we can love because you have loved us that it is not dependent upon just our ability to love, 
but rather because we've experienced your love, we now know how to love our wives, Lord. And so, Father, may that encourage us in that. May you continue to build within our church strong families, a strong husband and wife relationship. And as we go forward and think about even the, the parent-child relationship, may you build those relationships as well, Lord. Father, we thank you for the work you're doing in our hearts. May we acknowledge that work, Lord, and may we be submissive to it. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.